Everybody wants to play a bigger part. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody's wondering what we are at heart. This is day one. This is day one. Everybody wants to play a bigger part. Why are you waiting for tomorrow to start? This is day one. All right, we're here on the Day One Leadership Podcast. I'm sitting across the table from the best-selling author of the Book of Awesome, four other bestsellers. In fact, he has sold over a million books. He is the winner of the 2009 and 2010 Webby Award for World's Best Blog, which apparently he didn't even think existed. He is a world-renowned speaker. He is the director of the Institute for Global Happiness. He's also a man to whom I owe a debt of thanks because in many ways, my career as a speaker is because he brought the right people to TEDx Toronto 2010. I'm here here with Neil Pashrik. And Neil, how are you doing, my man? I'm great, Drew. Wow, it's, that was a flat, very flattering introduction. I don't know if it's all true. It sounds pretty good, though. Uh, I'm pretty sure most of it's true. Well, all of it's true, except I don't take any responsibility for your speaking career. You, have, you are an incredible speaker. N- nothing would have stopped your zooming to the heights you've zoomed to uh, if it wasn't, you know, it's, thank you for that. But it's like there happened to be a guy sitting in a chair at TEDx Toronto the day both of us spoke. And uh, they were lucky enough to find you first. You know what I mean? Hey, they came to see. Here's what happened, folks, just so you know. Neil and I met, although I don't even know if we really. I guess like backstage briefly at TEDx 2010, it was sort of like Neil drew and and we're both speaking. But uh, Neil, at that point, already had a New York Times bestseller in the Book of Awesome. So he was the big headliner at TEDx Toronto that year. I think I was on second. Uh, But Neil brought his uh, his speaking agents to come and see him, which I guess it was your first your first sort of onstage live speech, right? Yeah, I think it was. And so they saw me and snagged me right after I got off the stage. And the next thing you know, uh, Neil and I are sharing a, a speaking agent and we're off and running. Uh, it, so it, it's, it was because you brought the right people. I will take some credit, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, you did bring the house down with an incredible speech. Well, thank you very uh, much. Well, it's great to be here, Drew, and, and thanks so much for the friendship over the years, and I'm excited to have a conversation with you. Uh, me too, my good man. It's an exciting time for you, and we'll get to that as uh, right in front of us right now is your brand new book, and, and we'll get to that in a moment, but okay. So in 2008, you start a blog called A Thousand Awesome Things. It's a catalyst for your books, for your speaking, for the Institute for Global Happiness, but ironically enough, your life wasn't exactly awesome at that particular time, was it? No, it wasn't. I mean, I was in a marriage heading in the wrong direction, and I had a really close friend battling severe mental illness. I say severe as in, you know, he had attempted suicide before. And I start this blog, a thousandawesomethings.com. I'm driving home from Walmart one day. I'm like, I gotta cheer myself up somehow. I type how to start a blog into Google. I press, I'm feeling lucky. The only, I think that may be the only time I've pressed that button. 10 minutes later, I got a WordPress blog running, and it's a thousandawesomethings.com. So I start writing this blog. I'm writing about fat baseball players and finding five bucks in your coat pocket, getting grass stains, broccoli flour, like just random things. I didn't think anyone was going to read this website. And my personal life starts crumbling. So my wife does feel that our marriage needs to end, and, and you know, Today, I would look back and say she was right, but at the time, I, was, I couldn't even process that emotion, nor did I have time to, because my best friend did ultimately, sadly, succeed in taking his own life. And that was just, just so um, you know, destabilizing for his family and, and friends and everybody who knew him. And I kept trying to channel my energies into this website, a thousand awesome things, thinking I'll write one awesome thing every single day before I go to sleep to cheer myself up. 
And so that was the origin of the website. And of course, that thing just got bigger than I could have ever predicted. It got 10, then 100, then 1,000, then a million views. And it won those awards that you talked about. It turned into a book called The Book of Awesome. That thing took off. And it sounds like that seems like a pretty happy story, but the truth of the matter is as the book started climbing the bestseller list and I, I get invited to do other speeches, the truth of the matter is I'm not in a good place personally. How, how could I have been? I, I'm processing a divorce, losing a friend, selling a house, moving downtown to a place I don't know with no friends and you know, no social life. And I'm unhealthy. I, I'm losing weight due to stress. I'm not sleeping very well. I, I was buying like makeup to, to put under my eyes because I was embarrassed about the black bags under my eyes before I went to work every morning. I went to the drugstore and said like, what is the best like thing I can put under my eyes because I was so embarrassed. And so I, I, it took me a long time from then to try to shift myself from the observation of awesome things in the website to the application of them. And what I mean by that is actually dating and cooking and you know people used to come to my apartment and laugh the fact that I had nothing in my kitchen and they didn't mean my fridge they meant like my cupboards like I had no dishes I had like a box of salt not like a salt shaker you know and and until I started doing that again meeting new people actually spending time doing you know kind of social things then eventually I met someone new her name is Leslie she's a teacher here in Toronto and uh, I I found that that relationship helped actually propel me through that difficult period more than anything else. And from there, I started living what I would now call a good life. But it took a long time and a lot of years uh, for that to happen. It really, it really was kind of the, the lurch or the bottom was, was you know, kind of a long bottom. I wasn't it just pop right back up. It took a long, a long time to process. So you're, you're writing a blog that's making people happy. And in your own mind, you don't feel like you're living it. How, how, did that bother you? Well, so ironic, right? Then the newspapers got on the front page. Here's the Pied Piper of awesomeness. I, I'm being kind of championed as this advocate for simple pleasures. And I was, but on the inside, I'm working my full-time job at Walmart, which is great, but it's a very demanding job. I'm working for the CEO directly. And so I've got like this always on kind of position. I get home, I'm writing these blog posts for a thousand awesomethings.com. I'm getting 50 to 100 emails a day because my email address is there of people, you know, sending in their stories, often grief laden, you know, heavy stories. And um, I'm trying to respond to them all. And then there's media requests, and then there's speaking engagements. And that's why I was getting probably like three, four hours of sleep for more than a year, you know what I mean? And it was just draining. And that's why when April 2012 hit, and I had been dating Leslie at this time, and so things were starting to move in the right direction, but when April 2012 hit and I finished my blog, like my blog hit number one, I did what you're not supposed to do. When you have a blog that has 50 million hits, getting 50,000 hits a day, you know, you don't stop it. You don't just turn it off and say like, the end. You know, I actually said the end. I went to a bookstore downtown. We had the national news there. I announced the number one awesome thing, which was anything you want it to be. So it was like a blank page on the website. And I stopped. I literally did nothing. I had no, like, Leslie and I were like, what are you gonna do from like nine to midnight every night now? Like I had nothing, I had a vacuum because for so long it was an overwhelming feeling and it felt like such a relief. I couldn't have 
kept going. I was had no energy left by the end. It was like people that have run a marathon, I am not one of them, say like you know, you just kind of like yeah, you get to the finish line, you collapse. Like it was like that feeling for me with the blog. Which is weird, right? Because this is something that at this point is a New York Times bestseller, right? And it's making you money. So it, it's were you relieved when you hit number one? Because I know that when yeah. like somebody's got something successful, it's almost like this fear that it'll stop. I mean, it's something I deal with regularly too. I mean, it's great people invite us to go around and speak and share these ideas, but there's always this little voice in your head that goes, "Oh my God, what if it's over? This is going to end." How did you feel when it was oh, time man. to be number one? You know. Uh, for all those people listening, like any big major life change like that comes with like, uh, it's like a bunch of rubber bands of emotions all twisted together. It wasn't just relief, although there was relief. There was relief. There was pride. There was slight amounts of like, you know, feeling down or, or depressed about it. Like a sense of loss of the community of commenters and like people that were regulars on the blog. You know, I had like this little online coffee shop where people hung out. And there was, you know, the feeling of, uh, accomplishment and the feeling of like what next and like there's just so many emotions one thing I did do at the time which Leslie had recommended to me and I really recommend it for anyone going through any major life change is you know physically and mentally signify to yourself that you're into a new, like create a bookmark you know and so I went away for a weekend like the day after I hit number one with a friend of mine who had participated heavily in the blog, we went and met in, a, in New Orleans, which happened to be a city halfway between the, where the two of us lived. And we just had a buddy weekend. And it was, it was great to do that because mentally, now when I think of the end of the blog, I have a mental hook. I can be like, oh, that was that weekend I had with my friend. Um, and you know, we had some great times at great restaurants and so on. And like, that is so important, that separation, that physical separation of different points in your life. I think that too often, we don't signify life landmarks with any sort of occasion, and they're so important to do that. It's weird because that's the ones where you know there's a life landmark. Yeah, like it's the weird because like some of the biggest life landmarks, you have yeah. absolutely no idea that they're there. And it's funny when you say New Orleans too. I've never been to a city that makes you feel more like you could just disappear for a while. Like I don't know <laughs> if that's the same experience. But there's something about that city that makes yeah. you go. But just for now, a travel. Uh, it's now a travel podcast for a minute too, but. It really is a place that just makes you feel as if, you know what, I could sort of fade into the background here for a little while and then oh, come out I in a year. It. It's just incredible, that, that town. And, and like my favorite part was seeing a street clarinetist. I'm the guy that played the clarinet from grade you know, six to grade 11 or 12. Like it was my, I was you know, in the woodwinds. And to see like, you know, this incredible like, uh, you know, big classy guy with a hat wearing like a blazer playing the clarinet and like just whip just like ripping on it I was just like this is my kind of town like <laughs> nowhere else do you see a, a guy on the street playing the clarinet with like panache you know what I mean like with the like style and uh, yeah it was a great town but I do think those bookmarks are important and of course we do signify life events like weddings you know you have like a wedding but I think for my life you know I I, I, I hate to think of not being at my own funeral. I, I, like, what a great party in honor of me. And I'm not even there, you know, consciously. So like, I think it's important to have parties. One thing I've done is I'm 36 years old. My wife is 31. We've planned her 100 year old birthday. Like we've planned, obviously we know the date, we have an invitation, we've sent it out to friends and family, some of whom were a little sad because they're like, I don't think I'll be there because I'm your grandparents. And, uh, but, but having that mental milestone to look forward to, I'll be 106 years old, 
I can't wait to have my son dancing to the oldies from like the 2050s. And it's just cool because like I get to mentally hinge myself on something that is going to happen. And I, I think it's just fun to do that. So how'd you move? Like how did it feel when, because you were on Ellen, right? Uh, no, you're, <laughs> Today show, you're, early show, yeah. NPR, Oprah Winfrey Network, not Ellen. Okay. <laughs> like how does it feel sitting there? And like, how did you deal with going from the guys, you know, said you're working at Walmart and the guy who's been trying to, to fill up his cupboards to all of a sudden having millions of people watch you on TV and look up to you as a guy who's got maybe like, does it still happen? Has got keys to the things that they're missing in their life. And yet in some ways, did you feel like you were missing it in yours? You know, what's interesting, Drew, is that I, I, I sometimes do get the comment like, thank you. Your book did this for me or the book of awesome made me like this. And for better or for worse, my response to that is what inside you resonated with the book? And when they start talking about that, like, oh, well, I've always thought of myself as someone who likes small pleasures, but I have forgotten about it recently because of my, you know, uh, we lost someone in my family. And then I say to them, isn't it incredible that you already had inside you the thing which you're resonating with my work with? The point being is like, it's not me. Like, it's your, th you picked up that book, why? You read that book, why? You reacted to it, why? Like, it's it's like, I wanna thrust back on people the, the, the ownership that they really ultimately do have, the empowerment that they should feel about the actions they're taking in their life, which is why, and I know we're not talking about it yet, which is why the last secret in the happiness equation is ultimately, don't take advice because all advice resonates only with something you already want to hear. You're only looking for an alibi. So try to summon those internal feelings more because the only way you can test them is by bouncing them off other ideas that either resonate or don't with you. But that's how you find your true values, I think. It's just they're really coming from you. You just happen to be bouncing them off like it's like the way sound works. I hear it from Myers because it hits the wall beside me and comes back. It's like, that's what values are to me. They're, they're like, I test them by experimenting them with books and other things. But I want to tell people who say anything like that to me. That's like, it's, it's you. You did it. It's your life. You came up with that thought. It's, it's own it because it's like I, it's you that should have the credit for it. And let's talk about the book because really, Book of Awesome, the book of you, More Awesome, these are a key, I think, observational. Let's take a look at the world and recognize what's great. Now, in this book, the happiness equation, want nothing plus do anything equals have everything, which, by the way, I understand, you were telling me right before, is number one right now. It's just been released. And this book moves from observation to, in many ways, sort of a... I guess, education and execution. Mm -hmm. Like, tell us about the genesis of that. Sure. Move. Well, so I didn't realize at the time, but the book of awesome, the book of even more awesome, the book of holiday awesome, three books came out within 18 months of each other, 2010 to 2011. Like I said, I dropped the pen. I wasn't writing anymore. My blog stopped. I was living an awesome life. Like I had this new girlfriend. I was falling in love with her. We move in together. You know, we are starting to do a bit more traveling. I'm like getting more sleep. I'm cooking more meals. She baked me a birthday cake. It hadn't happened in years, you know? Things like that were happening to me. And we start planning our future. We get engaged, Drew. We get married. Still no new book. No book in 2012, 2013, 2014. And then we go on a honeymoon, and here's where the origin of the happiness equation comes from. We go on a honeymoon, we go to Southeast Asia. I didn't tell her where we're going, by the way. I planned the whole trip as a secret. Like she knew I was planning the honeymoon. It wasn't like 
So you got gas to get to Guelph? Like it was like, no, no, we had something planned, but I planned it all. So I go, we go to Southeast Asia on the flight home. She's like, I'm not feeling very well. I kind of feel sick. It's a long trip home. We have a layover in Malaysia. We go to the pharmacy. We get back on the plane. Leslie goes to the airplane bathroom, like the tiny little bathroom on the airplane. She comes to our seats. We're on the tarmac. We're about to take off on a 12 hour flight. She says, I'm pregnant on the airplane on our honeymoon. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're like, uh, okay, by the way, if you ever want to score a free muffin on an airplane, all you have to do is say, guess what we just found out. But anyway, um, so we had 12 hours to contemplate this, like to actually say, okay, we're going to be that couple that doesn't have a lot of couple time. You know, we're gonna have kids kind of right away. And what do we want for our children? Like what kind of values do we want to impart on them? Like what kind of life do we want them to lead? And ultimately you come back to the same thought, or at least I did, which is I just want my kid to live a happy life. But what is that? What's the action book? Like what is the actual step-by-step manual? What if I get hit by a bus and my kid's seven years old and I haven't had a chance to like impart, you know, on them my, my thoughts about living a great life? So when we land back home in Toronto, the writing bug comes back. I start waking up at 5 a.m. every single day, writing a thousand words every day before I go to work at Walmart. It was like a little timer, you know, I wanted to get a thousand words in before I let myself kind of go to work. And then over the nine months, I wrote a 300 page word document. It's a letter to my unborn child. The title is Dear Baby, I wanted you to have this in case I didn't have a chance to tell you. Love, dad. Lighters don't usually have a title, so that was like the first sentence I wrote. And that letter is the happiness equation. This book in front of us is the letter I wrote to my unborn son. Of course, we didn't know it was a boy or a girl, but it's that book. And so if you look at the copyright page in this book, that phrase, to my baby, I wanted you to have this in case I didn't get a chance to tell you. Love that. It's we we put it right here on the copyright page in the tiny print in the in the like the one point font to to sort of be a little bit of a tribute of the letter turning into this book. So this book is everything I know, learned, and believe to be true about happiness, so that my son and hopefully his children or anyone else can, in a time of confusion or a time of you know, losing yourself or in, you know, the way the world is today, you can kind of just need clarity. It's like, this is hopefully a bit of a beacon to, to having a happier life. I hope that's pretty pompous to say, but it's like, I'm a dad trying to give it to my kid to see, you know, can I give you some direction in case I'm not here to do that? Which is interesting because usually like the whole concept of day one is I usually ask people, if you went back, if you went back to the first day where you can really think of of yourself as a as an independent thinking person what advice would you give you you've got an entire book here that's kind of like hey on day one where it's time for you to start stop thinking of yourself as a kid I, I always say like the first day of high school is kind of when you realize holy crap like I'm gonna have to do this world thing on my own and I often think it's when you realize that holy cow there's a lot of mean ass people in the world and, and there's have, no instructions yeah and so you've got, you've got a whole book on that so without giving away Okay, I don't like you got you've got nine secrets uh, you, you comment in there and there's an awful lot of great stuff in the book. But imagine it's day one. So you get to sit down across from Neil Fashrika on day one. You, you wrote this for your kid. Let's imagine it's you sitting sure. across the table. 
give me give me some without giving too much away of the book. What are some of those things you've learned about happiness sure. that you really want it to, to spread? I mean, the first thing is based on a 2005 positive psychology study by Sonia Lebomirsky. So it's, it's, it's gotten more well-known now, but it ultimately provides the basis of how we should think about our lives. And that is that the model for happiness is backwards. So my parents were immigrants from India and Kenya, and they said, Neil, it works like this. You do great work. Then you have a big success, and then you be happy. Like, you study really hard, then you get good grades, then you get into a great school. Or you work really hard, then you get promoted, then you be happy. But all the research suggests that model is completely backwards. If you instead be happy first, then you do great work. Because your productivity, your creativity, everything zooms up. And then you have a big success. So the first secret is really underpinning the other eight. But it's the premise we got to start with, which is that you need to be happy first, i.e. you need to spend 20 minutes a day investing in your happiness. You know what, Drew? Everyone walks around with gym cards now. 30 years ago, nobody had a little pass to like, you know, extreme fitness in their pocket. They just you know, walked a lot more. And now it's like, I got to squeeze in like my treadmill at lunch and I want to like hit my lats before I go to bed. We accept these phrases. Nobody's saying yet, although I think they will be, I'd like to squeeze in my 20 minutes meditation at lunch, or I want to write down my five gratitudes before bed. We know these things work on increasing our happiness. Journaling, random acts of kindness, like we know what they are. The studies are in front of us. It's a 15 year old industry, positive psychology, and like there are the results. So the first thing you gotta do is invest in your happiness. Just give me 20 minutes a day to do some form of mental exercise that actually puts you in a better mood. That is the leading indicator to all the other positive results you'll have in your life. I had a, I had a brilliant friend, I talk about this. She said something kind of blew my mind. And it was one of those throwaway things. I don't know if you found like some of the most profound shit you ever hear. Someone just kind of tosses it and you almost stop and go, do you realize what you just dropped? And she said, well, I guess I got to work on this because I, I, happiness has to be cultivated. And I just realized, I thought, of it, oh my God, it has to be cultivated. She mm -hmm. goes, well, I can't just expect to be happy today. I better plant it if I ever expect to sort of pull it out when I need it. Yeah. That is true. Like we, we got to plant happiness so that on the days that we're having a bad day, like a month from now or even tomorrow like you got happiness that you've stuck in the ground before that you can actually cultivate and it's, it's weird like people just think it's going to be delivered to you from someone else i know i, I love that the, the word i've been using a lot lately is practice the way that people you say yoga practice yeah. and at the end of a yoga hour they say like how was your practice the goal is never to be perfect the goal is always to be better than before and so you know it's like, that's the same way I think about happiness. It's like, I'll go through days and I'm just coming off the end of, of, of a book tour. I've had these days where I'm like, okay, clearly not enough sleep, no time to meditate, shoot, didn't exercise, walk to and from like cabs, you know what I mean? And I'm like, no wonder I'm a bit grumpy at the end of the day. And by the way, shoot, I miss lunch. You know, you throw all those things together. You're like, Ugh, tomorrow I need to have a bit more sleep. See if I can do a little bit of meditation before my day begins. Write down three things I'm grateful for tonight before I go to bed damn, I know exactly what to do. I just can't always do it, but it's a practice. You got to invest in it. And then it starts from there. So it's weird when you say be happy first. I mean, I'm betting instinctively people listening are like, oh, well, easier said than done. And it sounds like you're not saying you have to be happy all the time. No, no, no. But you're saying you've got to plan to do some things that are going to lead to happiness yeah. each day. And, and that is what leads to, like, that's what leads to the grander 
all the time or most of the time happiness that we mm-hmm. think of. Yeah. So let, just to simplify it and make it even more clear, I say to people, do for me the 20 for 20 challenge. Give me 20 minutes a day for 20 days in a row to develop a new happiness habit. And they say, well, what am I supposed to do in those 20 minutes? I say, it's easy. You just pick one of these five things. You don't have to do all of them. They're mutually exclusive. Any of these five will work. A brisk 20-minute walk, ideally through nature, okay? 20 minutes of journaling at the end of your day about one positive experience. Committing one random act of kindness for somebody, whether that's a thank you letter or just buying someone a coffee. Okay, meditating for 20 minutes or writing down five things you're grateful for. There's five right there. You just have to pick one. Do it for 20 minutes a day for 20 days in a row. If you can't give me 20 minutes out of your day, you need two hours. Like you need to be doing these things. It's an exercise. It's a practice. That's what I mean by being happy first. It's just doing one of those five things a day and saying to myself, I'm just going to invest in me because I know all my, you know, productivity, creativity. Frankly, you're more likely to get promoted. You let you become the happy guy at work that people like having on their team because you're, you know, you're present and all the other good things you want actually come later. I like it. Now, one thing I will say though, for what it's worth, and you said, you know, do one random act of kindness for, and I know that you go out and you spread that message far and wide. So here's my question to you. Are you okay with the phrase random act of kindness? Because I have, I'm trying so hard to <laughs> knock that out of our lexicon. What do you prefer? Conscious act of kindness. Oh, I like it. There's nothing random. Yeah. Like we're not, you're, you're not talking about random. You're talking about systematically daily planning to have an impact. So I think you, I'm not, I shouldn't be arguing with my guest, I guess. But no, no, no. I want the argument. That's a great way to put it. You're right. Like things for me, it's like, you know, if someone comes up to me at a bookstore and they have a story about, a book or something. I like, I love just like buying them that book right then and signing it for nice. them. You know, I love, I love, it's random in my mind because it's not planned. But yeah, I think on a nomenc- from a nomenclature perspective, you're like, I hear what you're saying. It's like <clears throat> if you buy a coffee for a coworker, you know, then yeah, you're doing so thoughtfully. It, and by the way, the reason that works, the reason this whole random act of kindness thing works is because you feel good about yourself. Yeah. Like it actually it is a self. It's, it increases your own ego. Like, it's like, I'm the door holder opener guy. I'm Mr. Coffee Purchaser. Like, you think good about yourself. That's why it even works in the first place. So it's somewhat selfish, but it has a huge increase on your happiness. Well, it's interesting. I, I did a, I was asked to do a speech recently in Purdue, and they said, oh, the theme is selfless leadership. And uh, I thought, oh, that's great. What I talk about is selfless leadership, you know, adding value to other people's lives. And then I realized my entire keynote is about identifying your own values and then trying to live them every day. And I thought, oh man, do I really talk about selfless leadership? But you can't really be selfless with no sense of self, can you? Like, if you truly want to add value or, or, or be conscious about your happiness and adding it to other people, you really have to have a clear concept of what it is that you want to put out into the world, don't you? I mean, I my head's exploding. I think, that, you know, I find that so interesting too. It's like selfless leadership as a concept. It's like, I feel like what I hear in that phrase is servant leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, like doing for others as, as a form of service. And to me, you, you know, your work so, so naturally fits into that. But I mean, ultimately, a lot of these studies do make you feel better about yourself. That's why you then have more productivity. That's why you then have, you know, more uh, creativity. Because you're like, I'm on fire, baby. Like you have that thought going through your head. You're like, yeah, I'm Superman. Like I'm going to go. I'm flying. That's why you're so good. So it's like I, I wouldn't want to knock out the self, um, but 
I'm wading into terrain where like, I think I could argue myself either way. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> tough, right? Because you start, but ultimately, I mean, even the, the book, the, the book is, is for someone else. But my guess is that yeah. you feel good. Well, I, I, it I mean, I published it and sold it for 30 bucks. Like, why do I, why did I, if it's, a, if it's truly a letter from my son, like, who's this egotistical pig, like, printing it on, like, a hardcover, killing trees and stuffing it into a bookstore for me? Like, why do I even bother to do that? Obviously, I take pleasure from the ideas of this book resonating with people and trying to shift a value system in our culture, which I think is a little becoming a little toxic. Like, I think we're living in this culture of more and more and more. We're totally surrounded by, like, all kinds of digital, you know, uh, like, excess. We have an inability or we're growing an inability to, like, have more in-depth conversations. That's why I love podcasts, like, more in-depth conversations. And we are orienting ourselves around celebrity and money and, like, these things that are you know, so sweet, but they don't leave you full, you know? And so with the happiness equation, I'm, I'm trying my best to just nudge our culture. If I can be so bold into a value system, that's more oriented around the basics. It's not new age wisdom. It's age old wisdom. Be happy first is one, but if you keep going, it's do it for you. Remember the lottery. Remember you've already won. Never retire. Always be doing something you love. Create space in your life. Overvalue yourself. How to make more money than a Harvard MBA? Overvalue you. Forget how much money you make per year. Do something you love and make more dollars per hour. Be you. You know, if I go through the the backbone of the book, the value system I'm espousing, they're all oriented around happiness being inside yourself, looking inwards, not outwards, self-comparison instead of external comparisons. You know, finding it within you that you own it, that you are powerful, that you can just do whatever you want and forget all the cultural norms and stereotypes that make you want to go to the best school and get the highest paying job on Wall Street working 20 hours a day so you can have a cool car. Like, forget all that. Just blow it up. I hope the type A's that read this book rethink what they're doing and, and more of them, you know, quit to become poets. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about, you know, this is a value system. These these secrets, these backbone that you just called, you know, put happy first. Is this, are these your values? You know, it's funny, Drew. When you called me up and said, hey, do you want to do my podcast? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, and it's about values. I was like, oh, no. Because if I'm honest, I'm 36 years old. I remember in, I don't know, second year university, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, Canada, I had like a business ethics teacher and I remember her saying, okay, your homework assignment is to write down like a statement of your values and hand it in at the end of the week. And and I, I was lost on that assignment. I was like confused. I was like, you know, writing down things that my parents taught me, like, you know, pinch every penny and like, you know, like treat people like they want to be treated. Like I was quoting like, you know, the, the, the most basic sort of idioms, you know what I mean? And I remember handing in that assignment being like, man, I got some work to do. I need to like, I'm picturing like something framed on my wall that I live by. I want a code. I want a creed. I don't know if you follow the Good Life Project. Jonathan Fields, who I totally respect and whose podcast I, I did as well and I love doing. He's got the Good Life Creed, the manifesto. I'm like, I need something like that. 
And here I am today, and I struggled while writing the happiness equation. It wasn't like, yeah, I just put down on paper my value system. It was like, no, no, I went to a tortured place for another year. I was, my wife was like, oh, you're in your writing mood again, because I was like wrestling with all kinds of stuff, staying up till three in the morning sometimes, like getting into Wikipedia rabbit holes. But what came out, I think, Drew, is finally to myself, a third of the way through my life, an articulated value system, which I espouse and which I try to live by. And I put that word try in there because, of course, being happy first, doing it for you, remember the lottery. It's not like I wake up in the morning and I'm like, you know, Mr. Happy. I, I, I'm, a, I'm doing the practice. I, I'm trying my best. But yes, to answer your question, the nine secrets, the pithy two or three word phrases that end every chapter are the value system that I live by, finally articulated to myself in the form of a letter to my child. All right. Just so the listeners are here, you've done it. Can you give us them yeah. slowly and, and, and sure. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to love this. This is good. I don't usually get asked to do this. So <clears throat> I'm going to say the nine secrets, the titles, and then I'm going to say the two word statement. What's missing <laughs> in each of these is, is the, is the sort of 20 or 30 pages full of the, you know, the anecdotes, the positive psychology studies, the drawings, the Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, et cetera. So, so let's, are. let's be clear on this. You should really buy the book, folks. Yeah, don't like, forget to buy the book. No, 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 but seriously, like, here's the Cold Zones version. That's why I love that podcast. You're like, yeah, yeah, I got that. I got that. I was just saying to someone today, Drew, I was like, you know what? I love movie trailers more than movies because it's a three-minute summary of the movie. The only problem is it's got the first two acts. Yeah. Where's the third act? I want to see how it ends. Of course, that's why you go buy the film. So it's like me saying, here's the first six secrets, right? But I'm like, I wish there was a website that was full movie trailers, but like instead of three minutes, they were four and a half and it included the end of the movie. Because I'd be like, yeah, I just saw like all the romantic comedies from 2015 in like half an hour. Ladies and gentlemen, you just heard the new, <laughs> the 2017 new hot thing. It's going to be the four and a half minute movie trailer. Somebody's going to listen to this and be like, that's a that's a sweet idea. Well, you know, you can picture it. You, you just take the it. high end movie trailer they're already making, right? And then at the end, it's like a picture of your face with like a, you know, your like basement in the background. You're like, okay. And then Tina Fey comes home from Afghanistan and here's what happens with her love life. Like you just do like the 30 second summix, am, suffix on like the. I am pretty sure that is the first time that that sentence has ever been spoken out loud in English <laughs> language. I'm. <laughs> So lady, like, That's I, the current movie. I love it. I know, I know. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Secret number one. The first thing you must do before you can be happy. The answer is, we talked about this, be happy first. Secret number two. Do this and criticism can't touch you. And those four words are, what do you do? Do it for you. And in that secret, I talk about the confidence matrix and I talk about the three-word phrase, hide, apologize, and accept. You have to go through to develop your confidence. Secret number three. The three words that will save you on your very worst days, and they are remember the lottery and remember you already won. Remember the average income in the world is $5,000. Remember that 7% of people have a post-secondary education. Remember that there's nowhere else in the universe that has the right amount of oxygen and water to live. Like, just keep going and you're like, I'm kind of lucky here. Secret number four, the dream we all have that is completely wrong. The answer is never retire. The dream is retirement. Retirement was invented in 1889 in Germany when average lifespan was 67. And we finally said, oh, if you're 65, you can leave if you're sick. You know, it's like, uh, we kind of got a problem today. We live to 95 and we all want to retire at 55. Like there's a problem here. You actually don't want to retire. You want the four S's, social structure, stimulation, and story. We can talk about that more. Secret number five, how to make more money than a Harvard MBA. Overvalue you. 
I prove that a Harvard MBA, an elementary school teacher, and a Walmart assistant manager all make $28 an hour. All three jobs actually pay exactly the same. It's not how much you make per year. It's how much you make per hour and how much time you spend at home with your friends and family. That's how you overvalue yourself. Secret number six, the secret to never being too busy again. The answer is create space. And I talk about removing choice, time, and access through thoughtful models in order to simplify your day and never be too busy again. Secret number seven, how to turn your biggest fear into your biggest success. This is where I share how I couldn't swim in my 30s. I always thought I had to have the capability and then the motivation and then the action. Like I got to can do it and then want to do it and then I do it. But then Leslie told me her parents had a cottage on an island and all her like 80-year-old grandparents and five-year-old cousins go swimming around the island every day. So I signed up for city of Toronto downtown swimming lessons without thinking about it. And then I realized that actually it goes do, can do, want to do. Action actually creates the motivation, not the other way around. So the answer is just do it. That's how you turn your fears into your successes. You do a tiny small thing like running to the stop sign in your dress shoes. And then you're like, maybe I'll run a marathon. You, you keep thinking, then I can do it. And then I want to do it. Secret number eight, the simple way to master your most important relationship. The answer is to be you. This is about authenticity and I share the three tests for finding your authentic self. And I perform these tests on me every six months or so. They're the Saturday morning test, the bench test, and the five people test. And finally, secret number nine, the single best piece of advice you'll ever take. We already talked about this. It is to don't take advice. Because the truth of the matter is every single piece of advice you've ever heard in your life has an exact opposite piece of advice. Like someone will tell you really quickly, oh yeah, defense wins championships. And then they say, well, the best defense is a good offense. Or somebody will say, birds of a feather flock together. And then they'll say, no, no, opposites attract. Or absence makes the heart grow fonder. Or is it out of sight, out of mind? Finally, the pen is mightier than the sword. Or maybe it's actions speak louder than words. Every single piece of advice has an exact opposing advice. You have to find what resonates with you, not what, what other people say. So if, if the book is an advice, what is it? Well, I know there's this trick question in the end, right? Because you finally get to the end. And what I'm trying to provoke the reader to do is to get to the end. And if they're treating the book like a doctrine, like if they're like, yeah, 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 then finally it's like, wait a minute, I disagree with secret number six or whatever it is that forces them to really ask themselves what they agree with. I, I give that last push because I don't want it to be a self-help book, you know, like follow this thing like the Bible. It is actually meant to be like provoke and stir up your own value system so that whatever behavior change you feel is something that you're doing because you want to. And then you know what happens through when people do that? They're more likely to stick with it. It's not like I read this book and now I'm on this diet for two weeks. It's I read this book and it made me realize I wanted to do this differently. So I did. That to me is a, a better way to orient someone's mind is not just give them the answers, but tell them here's how to stir up your own value system. Which is interesting because so, you talk about overvaluing yourself. I was just having a conversation with this brilliant guy and he's – you know, he, he has the opportunity to have people listen to his ideas too. And, and we're incredibly lucky. And people listen to our po like our podcast that read our books. And he said, you know, your podcast. Uh, well, <laughs> fair enough. But he said, um, you know, cause you know, he was out doing a speaking engagement and he got paid for it. And like anybody who starts getting paid to speak, there's this little voice in your head that goes, 
oh man, I can't believe people just did that. And there's also a pressure that comes being like, well, people have paid now for what I have to think. And he goes, how do you know how much to charge? And I'm like, oh, I have no idea. I'll charge, you know, what people will pay. He goes, well, I just feel bad asking for this much. And I started to realize that, you know, that's really the, the key of overvaluing yourself is fundamentally like, well, how do you know what you have to say is worth anything? I'm like, I don't, but the market says it does. And it's hard to believe that mm-hmm. sometimes like, well, where, who, how do I have the right to say that what I have to is worth a certain amount? Yeah. How, like, how do you deal with it? The people are listening to that. Being yeah. like, how do you overvalue yourself? Isn't the fear that when you overvalue yourself, other people are going to judge you mm-hmm. for saying, this is what I'm worth. And aren't we afraid of saying, okay, I'm worth this. And there's going to be too many people in the world that go, no, you're not. So yeah. how, how do you get over that hump? Well, the way you get over that hump, and I think it's a great question, and by the way, of course I've wrestled with this too, is that you have to pull out your own internal value system. So I'll share two things. One is my wife and I have a contract. We wrote it, and it says in writing, because we always have a contract with work, you know, like a job contract, but we very rarely have a contract at home for similar parameters. So my contract at work says, oh, I'm going to do this job for this much money. You know what I mean? But at home, I don't have a job saying, I don't have a contract saying, I'm going to be away this many nights a year, which distills down to this many nights a month, which means we're going to have time as a family this many days a week, just just our family, just me, my wife, and my son. Are, you know, and are we going to have a, a Neil's night out once a week and a Leslie's night out once a week, which we've put in there. So we've put in parameters and those parameters help create what works for me when, when it comes to speaking. For example, Seth Godin says he charges triple for his West Coast speaking engagements compared to his East Coast or New York City speaking engagements because he lives in New York City. So it's like, is he worth three times the amount to say the same thing in Los Angeles? Obviously not. But for him, that's a night or two away from his family. It's two five-hour plane rides. It is worth more to him. So that creates more demand for his speaking services on the East Coast or in New York, which perfectly fits within his lifestyle. He talks about cooking dinner for his family every night. That's how he pulls it off. And so for me, it's the same exact thing. I think when it comes to speaking, the value of live as a currency is only increasing. These days, anyone can see content. It's not about the IP. It's not about the like, you know, what did this book say? Like everything's free. Like it's just, it's right on YouTube. Like it's right on TED.com. Like press the button, put it on the big screen. You got the high definition video. There's nothing special about that. The thing that's special is the three E's. If you can entertain, empower, and eventually like educate people, if you get to that place, people change their behavior. That's the value of live. What's special about live? Intimacy interactivity, a group going through an experience together, like a frosh week together, a bonding experience together, an organization-wise behavior change, asking a question, getting an answer, getting your book signed to your mom who's sick. Like those types of things can only be done live. And by the way, time is a finite resource. The richest man in the world can't buy any more time. So whatever it is that... um, you know, we all have the one thing that we have no more of is time. So if I am, you know, doing five speeches in five cities, that means that's one less that I have to play with my, or five less days I have to play with my kid. And if I, and, and like, how much do I value that? Is that worth a dollar amount? Like, no, it's not. It's worth an infinite amount. I don't ever not want to be able to have dinner with my child or put my kid to bed or have a ba- have a bath with them, you know what I mean? And so if I'm going to trade that in, 
it has to be to make a big difference somewhere else for like, you know, a, a very short time period so I can rush back home. Like I have to be able to balance those things. So those are some of the thoughts I have that create what you asked for, which is like a pricing model. But I think that that pricing model is only a function of the fact that we have this scarce resource. Like we have time. We have hardly any of it. The average person gets 25,000 days of life, period, total. That's it. Now, this book, The Book of Awesome, and you were talking about the transition that went from the guy you were to the guy you are now, and obviously it continues. I'm the same way. Like Both you and I spend time trying to pick apart life and habits and ways to try to make them better. Do you regret, like, do you ever come across, like, these nine secrets, whatever it might be, and think, ah, damn, I wish I'd known that earlier. Like, do you find that the process of getting better also comes with a feeling of regret that it took this long? I definitely don't. And the reason I don't is because life's life... It's 25,000 days, but if you put that into years, you're like, okay, that's 75 years. Okay, I'm 36, right? And I hope to live longer than that even. You know, I hope with modern medicine and so on, I can live longer than that. Then I think, okay, I got my, I had my zeros, which were joyous and fun and full of like friends and family. I got my teens, which were full of like just learning and creativity with good friends. I had my 20s, which were, it's all about experimentation. Did I make mistakes? Absolutely. Did I fail at tons of stuff? Oh my gosh, I should tell you about half the like harebrained schemes I tried and they totally went kaput. Like I started a restaurant that didn't work. I like, you know, tried writing for a comedy studio in New York City, which was a total bomb. Like I have tons of things that went wrong, but they were all, even a marriage that didn't work out. Like, but they were all things I tried and learned from and grew from, which eventually form a future version of me that I'm happy with. So you, you can't change the past. It's like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. It's like if you delete the memory of the girlfriend that you lost, you've lost also your love of, you know, pet sounds by the Beach Boys, like good food at a restaurant and like, you know, Kurt Vonnegut novels. Like, and literally I just named those things from a girlfriend I had. But like the point is, it's like deleting past experiences or even changing them. It's the butterfly effect, man. I don't want to mess with who I am today. I don't want to screw with that. So imagine you could go back to day one, and this is what I love, because you're right, I, I, that resonates so much with me, but there are things in my life I always know I'm like, if I could make that younger version of me do something every day, we wouldn't lose things, but I maybe have the opportunity to add a few more. So this is one of our, my favorite questions. You get to sit down across from Neil Pashrika on his first day of high school on day one. You get to say to him, answer this question every day. Don't go to bed without having an answer for this question every day. What question would you give him? And Did, whatever question yeah. you give him, he's going to answer for the rest of his life. So you get to change your behavior starting in grade, first day of grade nine. I mean, my whole, the question is really simple for me. And it is, did you try something new today? And the reason I say that is because the world is huge. Eh, there's more countries than anyone will visit. There's more people than anyone will meet. There's more foods than anyone will try. There's more music than anyone will listen to. There's more like loves and passions and everything that anyone could ever dream about. Like if you don't try one new thing every day that, and you only have those 25,000 days, it's like, you gotta get as much as you can. Like the thing to avoid more than anything is like a rut or is like sameness or consistency because then it means, you know, I would hate to die and think, well, I never tried sushi or like, shoot, I, I really wish I'd gone to one classical music concert or tested like, you know, 
stand-up comedy or, or like whatever it is, like been on Drew Dudley's podcast. Like I can say I did it. You know what I mean? I just want to try something new. I heard Michael Crichton speak once live at Harvard Business School when I was doing my MBA there. And it was a year or two before he died. So he's on his last kind of phase of life, sadly. And someone said, like, what are you doing here? You know, Michael Crichton, like, why are you the author of Jurassic Park speaking at Harvard Business School to a class of business school students? Like, why are you here? And it wasn't meant to be a malicious question. And he laughed and he's like, that's the best question. Cause he's like, honestly, I have no idea. Like literally someone just asked me and I just have always gone through life thinking I'll just do whatever and experiment with wherever that takes me. So me speaking at Harvard might lead me to meet someone who introduces me to a person that tells me about my next book idea, which like life is a roller coaster. Get on. So you got to try something new every day. Otherwise, like you're just past trading in your ticket. Give me a couple examples of how you've answered that question recently. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, in the last two weeks alone, here are two <laughs> things I did. Um, I went to Google in Mountain View at the head office and I signed a book saying to the, for their library saying, dear Google, I love you, but please don't take over the world. And I put it in the Google library and I walked around campus and I was like, the Walmart cafeteria is better than this. I was just like having fun there. I was just like an experimental place. I just thought like, it's cool to like be in the center point, like fortune's best company to work for, for six years in a row. This is what it is. Like you gotta, you gotta feel what that feels like and know it's normal, you know? So I really enjoyed doing that. Um, I had some experiences where I was, uh, I went to Microsoft, um, a place that I'd like respected and grew, you know, grew up kind of observing as a child. Like, I'm like, I'm like, someone here has got to be able to defeat expert mode and Minesweeper. You know what I mean? Like, who is it? Because I've been struggling with that for two decades. Someone tell me the trick. I know about the double mouse click. But, like, it's just, like, experiencing different people in, who are engineers at this, like, interesting company in the corner of the world. I love talking to those people and, like, asking them what books they read. And seeing that, frankly, to be honest with you, they're just like you and me. I got emails afterwards, like I suffer from mental illness or like, here's some things I'm wrestling with or I think I need to make a change. It's like, holy cow, exposing yourself to where the geniuses are keeps reminding you that everyone's the same. I had a boss once who said that you always think the geniuses are at the next level. So it's, it's, it's insanely gratifying to keep exposing yourself to the quote unquote next level. Like, a New York Times bestselling author, a person that works at Google, the best company to work for, an engineer beside, behind Microsoft, someone else who's like curating the TED conference, whatever, and be like, they're normal. They got nothing on us. We're all the same. We're all a bunch of molecules. We all have insecurities. We all think we're five pounds overweight. Like we all just, then it's like, that is so self-affirming because then you're like, well, I can do whatever I want then. Like I am just so empowered to be myself. And that's just so gratifying. Do you, now, you're so empowered to be yourself. Now, how hard is that when you, like, is there a thing in your head that starts to make you think, okay, well, people want me to be something else? Like, you are, the guy who wrote the Book of Awesome, and now you've written The Happiness Equation. I am assuming sadness is still a part of your life. Do you feel extra pressure to deal with it in, a, in the right way? Because people are calling you and asking you, okay, well, how do we be happy? So when sadness comes into a life of a man who is who literally wrote the book on awesome and who has now literally written a book on happiness, is there extra pressure to deal with sadness in the right way? What role does it play in your life? That's an interesting question. Um, of course, I, I'm definitely, you know, I, I try to 
live a normal life. So of course I experience a ton of emotions on a regular basis. Uh, but I think that I don't feel that extra pressure. I do sometimes feel a spotlight, especially if, you know, it's, there's a thousand people sitting there and somebody asks you like a question, like I'm really struggling with this. I've tried everything. Do you have something that can help me? And it's like, you know, you're like, you know, you want to empower, you want to give people a tool, you want to leave people with something they can put in their pocket. But at the same time, you also know the world's more complicated than that. So how do you do that? And I think that ultimately, um, it comes down to empathy and it comes down to trying to relate to how people feel and trying if possible. And if you have the time and the energy to use the three most powerful words in the English language, which are tell me more. And those words can actually help people more than almost anything else because they let people process their own thoughts and come to terms and articulate them and move past them. So by putting my email address on my blog in a public way, it's neil at globalhappiness.org, drop me a line, and having it public always from the first day of my blog, I give people a vent and I give them a response. And I get people emailing me like regularly, like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but it's Tina from three years ago. Remember I told you I had that issue? Like, here's what happened to me since. And like, I'm not doing much, Drew, but I'm, I have a public face, as we all do these days. Like, you can Google anybody. But like, it's like just creating an avenue and event for people, I think, partially relieves me of what you have termed like the pressure of it, but also gives people a bit of a place to put a thought that they might want to share. The best person ever at doing this, by the way, is Frank Warren, the uh, guy behind postsecret.com, who's a friend of mine, because, like, he's America's most trusted stranger. I mean, like, he gets millions of anonymous postcards mailed to him of people confessing and sharing things that just get it off their chest. He is like a, like a secular confession booth, you know what I mean? And, like, what an obligation, but also how amazing is it? that he's providing such a service to society. So you need to have him on your podcast. I would absolutely love that. We'll, we'll get on it. Well, here's one thing I found as a speaker that really shocked me. Because when you start taking stages, immediate, like there's this urge, I think, to want to be impressive or to want to be motivational, inspirational. And I started to realize, and it took a long time, and it actually, when you talk about mental illness, and I want to touch on that for a second, that I would mention the fact that I'm bipolar for 45 seconds at the end of a 60 minute and it wasn't it was sort of an almost an aside and the number of people who would walk up and and comment on that mm. one 45 seconds and i started to realize that the greatest thing you can do and this is just as a speaker i think this is a human being is that isn't to make people say oh my god i didn't know that like the most powerful thing you can do is to make people say oh my god i thought i was the only one mm -hmm. i thought i was the only mm -hmm. one who feared that or needed that mm -hmm. or, or wanted that and so you talk about the, the people coming up to you and saying, you know, I'm really, really struggling with this. When someone says to you, I'm having a really hard time, I'm going through the same thing that you did, what do you tell them? Well, first thing I try to do is say, tell me more, you know, and let them really try to process and articulate. You never know. Have they, have they had anyone to talk to you about it before? Do they have any other place to put this? It may be that you're the only anonymous person that they feel comfortable sharing something with. So that helps them process it. I also am really careful, right? Because you know, I I don't want to, um, I I don't want to pretend that I'm the expert on what what they have going on. So I share what works with me. So I say 
I had therapy. It was really helpful. I had a, an outlet. It was called 1000awesomethings.com, but it was a public journal that helped me. I also had the gift of time. Those three things, the formal therapy by like a trained psychologist, the public journaling, the process of being grateful in public, plus time was very beneficial for me. Sometimes someone will then pick one of those three things or like it'll provoke a thought themselves be like you know what i've i had this journal beside my bed like you just inspired me to like start writing in it again or whatever it is that may work for them so i'm i'm a listener first and then i and then i share my own kind of prescription in the hopes that somebody might like take a pill from my pill box and maybe it works for them and, and sometimes people almost seem shocked right they're like oh well you know, I thought you had everything figured out. Oh my that, gosh! Isn't yeah. it like I found? Because here we are doing a podcast. Yeah, we're talking about know. bipolar and therapy. This is fantastic. Yeah, and we're supposed to be, <laughs> and we're supposed to be the guys that talk about happiness and, and yeah. leadership. Yeah, yeah, And I think that's to any listener out there. Yeah. Like, here's the thing: anybody who's talking about happiness or leadership or success, like they've lived the opposite. It sometimes almost feels as if if you talk about one thing, you give up your right to have ever. Like people are almost disappointed if they found out that you ever had the opposite. Some do, but I find way more people are like, mm -hmm. oh, thank God. Like, I thought I could never be that. I could never write a book on happiness or, or feel happiness until you tell them that, oh, no, the, the happiness book came from sadness. And in many ways, it came from fear that you wouldn't get the chance to share some of that, right? Well, exactly. And I'm also careful to, like, people always say, like, so, like, how do you always be optimistic like you? And I'm like, but I'm not an optimist. Actually, it's a practice for me. I'm trying to get better at being happy. These secrets in the happiness equation are some of my tools and they're working for me. I'm lo I'd love to share them with you, but please don't mistake my ability to share them as me being like, because I do all of these things every day and it's perfect and it's easy for me, as opposed to it's like, here's what I've learned and what I've benefited from and what I found beneficial. Hopefully they then work for you too. It's like, it's just these days in, in the current world, we don't, there's no soapbox preachers anymore. There's people in the center of the circle. You know what I'm saying? That there's not someone above that we all look up to and take their words as gospel. There is, and even just look at the places we speak at, Drew. Like there's less stages. There's less, there's less pedestals. There's less giant screens with big, bright surround sound. It's like, no, no, no. Like it's people like Gary Vaynerchuk. You know, it's people like that just like break it down on what's going on and how to do it with you know, total authenticity, you know, and you can fault them for that, but then you also gravitate towards that because it's like, oh man, they're, they're sharing everything. It's people like Tim Ferriss saying on his blog, like he's had suicidal thoughts and sharing about how he dealt with that. That's much more believable than a guy who's like just always on working four hours a week and just nailing it. Now I know he's had struggles. That makes me connect with him more. And I share that story because I'm like, when I read that post, my respect level and connectedness level to him went way up, you know, because it's like, oh, obviously he's a normal guy because everyone is. And, and which is, I think, great because so many people are afraid to show their vulnerabilities because they think it's going to mean they're attacked. And what I found is that when you share vulnerabilities, it tends to actually, some people always are going to prey on weakness. But I found that it actually really makes a lot of people more connected to you, whether it's as a speaker, as an author, or just the person who works next to somebody else. Yeah. Like, be willing to be like, this is what scares me. Well, the beautiful thing about it is you use that phrase, prey on weakness. I totally see it the opposite way. I feel like that when I share stuff like that, I actually insulate myself from any attack. Because, like, what you got on me now? I, I got nothing you can unveil. 
You've got nothing you can expose. You've got nothing on me that you can reveal to me against what I want to reveal. Like it's all out there. I am myself. So now that I am myself, let's have a conversation. And, and there's really nothing you can jab at me because it's like, I'm not hiding anything. I think this is the final scene in Eight Mile, isn't it? Like this is... <laughs> so, so what what is the toughest question you've ever been asked, either in a Q&A or, or simply throughout the course of your life? I mean, you said way back at Queens, someone simply asked you to outline your, your values. But like, what's the toughest question you've ever been asked? Oh, man, what's the toughest question I've ever been asked? You know, I've, I mean, I've, I've, I think it's hard that the big meaty things in life, you know, love, loss, Beauty, uh, those things are 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 like we we are we are all as imperfect, you know, uh, kind of temporary people, always trying to answer those big questions. So defining big words like that, articulating how I think about them, like they're amorphous, right? So those things I find that I um I struggle with, but not because I'm struggling, but more because I'm, I'm I'm still learning about them. Like I'm in a loving relationship with my wife. I'm still learning about love. I'm in a very loving relationship with my child. I'm still learning how to be a dad. I'm in a very loving relationship with my parents. I'm still learning how to be the best son. I'm in a very loving relationship with my sister. I still like to be a better brother. How do I make sure her birthday this year is the best birthday she's ever had? How do I give her the support she needs, you know, uh, with her child? How can I be the best uncle to her kid? Like, they're eternal questions. They're what every movie is about and what every song is about and what every book is about. So of course I wrestle with those, but that's why I love art and why I love beauty and why I love life. The big, the big concepts, you and I, you say right at the beginning of your book, I've done, I've been involved in leadership development for a decade. It's what I do too. So someone once walked up to me at the end of a workshop and said, I'm sorry, English isn't my first language. Could you just explain what leadership means in the simplest terms possible? <laughs> and man, I choked on it. That's a good one. So, yeah, yeah. So, so, let's, yeah, yeah. so let's do this one. The big, the big terms, yeah. what do they mean? You and I have both been doing this for a long time. Oh man, this is going to be hard. I know it's going to be hard. Okay, what do you got? Leadership. You know how I define a leadership? Someone with a follower. I, I, like literally as simple as that, semantically, it's like someone whose actions we want to follow, therefore they're leading us. If It's like on Twitter. It's like how many followers do you have? It's like people are – a leader is literally defined by its followership. So do do they demonstrate a set of behaviors or values or – you know, even a, like attack, like they're a great public speaker or whatever it is that I want to follow. If yes, then they're a leader. They're leading me in something. So I define leadership in terms of what is surrounding the leader. It's like, it's like the the painting on the outside of the canvas creates the square. Yeah, you know what I mean. The leader is defined by the the follower. What's interesting too is is that's always such a common question. Like, oh, can you be a leader without followers? And that comes up all the time. It's, it's, it's that the two most common questions I get asked right now is, can you be a leader without followers? And is Donald Trump a leader? Um, <laughs> you know what, though, I will say is that I feel like as a society, and I know that's like one of those like, you know, classic cliche phrases, but like as a as a people, we are getting too hung up on nomenclature like like words are dragging us down like happiness, for example, my book, The Happiness Equation, it's like like. I can't do many interviews where it's like, well, what's happiness? Well, is this happiness? Is that happening? Like, it's subjective well-being. That's how we call it in scientific studies, purposely subjective well-being, how you think you feel. The Declaration of Independence promises life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It doesn't promise life, liberty, and happiness. 
They only promise you the pursuit. And the point is, don't get hung up on all the words. It is how you feel about the words. And can we have a conversation that's progressing past the words? Because I love the definition conversations. They're fun, but I don't want us as you know, I don't want us to keep getting hung up on like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Like, we're not dictionaries, you know? It, it's about living a great life. The end. So you talked about those cliches. Which one do you hate? Like, there's, there's, uh, someone called them a cultural cliche the other day to me. Because I, I always ask that advice, you know, like, what, what advice do people give that you just wish they would stop giving? And so they said, oh, a cultural cliche. And so I'm like, which one do you hate? Because you're talking about, like, we use these words. And I found this, this really bothers me. When people don't know what to say, they throw out some tried and true concept. Mm -hmm. And so is there one out there that really drives you nuts? Well, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, the point I'm trying to make in secret number nine of the book is I'm just looking at it now. It's like nothing ventured, nothing gained. Or is it better safe than sorry? Like, is it clothes make the man? Or is it, you can't judge a book by its cover? Like, it, I can't explain it, but like everything conflicts. That's why there's this, there's this great quote um, that I want to find. And it's like, <clears throat> yeah, Charles Varley wrote in 1872, when we ask advice, we are usually looking for an accomplice. I like it. That's what we want. We want someone who agrees with what we want to do. So... It's like you can keep looking outside for advice or you can just double down on sitting alone on a bench somewhere and asking yourself what you want to do. And then when you do it, it feels totally in line with your values. And it's like a, you know, a, the cover of the remote control battery set, like clicking into place. It's like snap. You feel so good. There is nothing as fulfilling as doing what you want to do. So you've got a book here for your kid in case they don't, you don't get to pass it on to them. Let's say that in 20 years you get to give them another one about what you've learned between now and then. What do you hope that book's about? <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is called The Happiness Equation. It's really uh, the ultimate thesis of the book, of course, is it is in you. You know, and actually I can show you because we're, we're sitting here in person underneath the jacket. I actually hid that phrase under the jacket. It appears nowhere else in the book. It's not in the text. It's not on the back cover. It's only on the actual hardcover book. It is in you. So if I were to write another one, I'm thinking about your relationships. You know, I'm thinking about words like trust and love, connectedness, relationships, and um, that's as far as I've got. I've got cue cards. I've got little notes. I'm writing, I'm cutting things out of newspapers. I'm like thinking about that because I think of myself as someone who's in a loving marriage. Uh, but of course I'm also thinking about how does that, you can't compare, like you can't compare your relationship to other people's cause you're not in those other people's relationships. So like, then what's a good relationship? How do you not compare, but how do you, how do you make it? ultimately fulfilling for yourself and someone else how do you create that trust and that you know that intimacy at like you know to, to, to like a beautiful loving depth and i'm like i'm just swimming in that kind of thought right now these days and and how uh, i guess that might be a little bit too deep but like once that's been broken how do you get it back again <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh my god! Sorry, that's. Well, I, I mean, well, I, really I mean, I've broken a couple times, and those relationships I'm not in anymore. So I don't know. Um, I, I don't do you, know. I, I, it's hard. Yeah, now I mean, you are in one, right? Pardon? But now you are in one. So yeah. So how does it come back? Oh, I see what you're saying. How do you love again? No, Is that maybe. What you're yeah, simple question. You know, yeah. I brought you here to talk about your book, and yeah. and you're talking about yeah. uh, these concepts like trust and relationships, etc. Yeah. And yet, right off the top, you said that. The, the ones you put your trust in are gone. And yet you managed to not only find another one, but to write a book about happiness afterwards for the child that came out of that. And, and I guess I didn't really plan on asking you this. And feel free to say, like, Drew, that's way too, too out there. But you got a lot of people, no doubt, who are listening to this who have been through that, who the last trust they had was broken and they haven't yet found the next one. What would you say to them? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, this is hard to do, but you got to trust again quickly. And I try desperately on every first date I ever had to be me. Like, warts and all, you know? I don't know how to use a hammer. You know what I mean? <laughs> I can't tie my shoes properly, you know? I, you know, I, like, I got tons of things I can't, you know what I mean? It's like, just be yourself. Because if you hide yourself, you may never know who might love the true person inside. It is worth the kicks. The, the, the paper cuts, the punches, the slaps. It is worth, and I don't mean those literally, but I'm trying to say like whatever emotional punch you get from being yourself, it's worth it because then when you find connectedness with someone like, look, I'm sitting across from a friend who I love, who I've known for years, I wouldn't be here with you if I wasn't my true self and you weren't your true self when we met. Isn't it worth it? Well, look what we got out of it. Like, uh, so I'm, like, I'm gonna throw that on the table everywhere. And by the way, half or more are gonna think I'm a total weirdo. But that's fine because that means the ones that I do connect with, we go deep quickly, and it's awesome. There's nothing as fulfilling as a deep relationship like that. My man, what? Uh, anything you wish I'd asked you? No, you got good questions. Oh well, no, I just always <laughs> love to ask people at the end. Like, is there anything that you wish I'd asked you? Like something out no, there. No, I feel like I feel like I've just had like this incredible therapy session. Like I've just hey. gone deep. This has been fun. I'm I'm not surprised. I know how good you are, and uh, this has been really really interesting. I can't wait. You know, the hard part about doing your podcast, Drew, is there's no podcast. Like I'm like, you know, I did three other podcasts today. What did I do? I downloaded a bunch of episodes. I'm listening to them. I'm like, oh, that's what the host is like. Oh, that's what the guest is like. I'm about that's how long it is with you. I'm like. Yeah, you're like, I'm launching it soon. I'm like, here goes nothing. Like, what are we doing? This could go anywhere. So I can't wait to see what this show or this podcast looks like. I can't wait to subscribe. I can't wait to listen. I'm excited to see where you take this. Well, thanks. And I'll say this to the listeners too, is that it's it's funny. You said um, the question you'd ask is what do you do today? Like what new thing did you try today? Oh, and yeah, it, and yeah. one of my key questions every day is, what did I try today that might not work, but tried anyway? Mm. And, and I want to say to all the listeners and to you, like this whole podcast is that. Like right from the very beginning when I'm like, hey, you know what? It's a little echoey in here. Like let's pick up the microphone just so everyone knows <laughs> yeah. we did notice that. Yeah. And, and like you've got stomping going on outside. Yeah. And I guess it was just kind of like, you know what? Who, like let's listen to what Neil's saying and who gives a crap if people are listening being like, oh, well, that's echoey. Like we'll mm-hmm. fix that. Mm-hmm. We'll figure it out. And I'll also figure out the right questions to ask and I'll also figure out. Uh, but ultimately what I want to do is walk out of the room being like, man, I feel better for having had that conversation. And I think if that's the case, it, everyone who listens, I hope, will, will have the same thing. So we're all figuring it out as we go. Totally. And, and I think if anything, if you want to take anything out there, listeners, like these are two guys who 
who spend their life talking about leadership. And the best thing we can do is to be like, I don't know how this is going to work, but I'm going to put the right people in the room and we're going to figure it out as we go. And we're going to hopefully hope that all of you are willing to forgive us because you have to watch us figure it out as we go. But I still, I think, and it's why I ask a lot of these questions, I still, I think, am trying to get to where you are in some ways, which is to let go of what I think I have to live up to and instead uh, just like allow for people to, like give enough people credit, people enough credit to be like, you know what? When I watch it come together, I'll respect that. I hope anyway. Well, Um, you should just follow your own t-shirt. Oh my God. I'm wearing a t-shirt right now that says, uh, actually we'll put, a, we'll put a photo of it. What does it say? I'd, I'd rather, I'd rather be, be someone's shot of whiskey than everyone's cup of tea. Which apparently is a Carrie Bradshaw quote from Sex in the City. Which is that I where no, that shirt's from? I had from? no idea when I bought the t-shirt, but I've had some like, people like, nice Sex in the City. I'm like, oh. It's a oh. nice underlying theme of our conversation today. I, I, I think so as well. But man, thank you so much. I mean, it's been... My pleasure. Um, the thing about Neil, uh, we met back in 2010. I think we've maybe crossed paths in person. Remember the plane? Yeah, like we met in, in Dallas, <laughs> the I airport. Was. I just like walked into a plane, and you're like on the we're like on the same plane on the way home. That's and and the, the you know I had a blast at that one because I'll tell you, folks, Neil, uh, uh, I don't know, like you'd had a long trip, I think, or something. And and this is just one of those 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 cool moments that happen when you just try to recognize how other people are feeling. And so I was like, hey, drive, because you'd never driven a convertible before. Oh, and I yeah. was just like, drive this thing. And, you, and like, you got by. And well, I, you're saying we landed at home. We, we, land, we got on the plane. Toronto. We met, we met I was going to take a cab home. Yeah. You had a car. Yeah. And, and a convertible. But, and you were like, oh, I've never driven one before. So we just pulled off the highway. And you jump behind the wheel, and you had the same experience I did the first time you drive one. You're like, yes. But I want to tell you, this is, this, is, <laughs> this is why I love Neil. Because what happens was, Call Me Maybe by Carly Rae Jepsen <laughs> came on. And this guy drives us up Spadina Avenue in Toronto. With Call Me Maybe blasting. I think it was Saturday night, too. Like so in the morning. everybody's out. All the clubs are, 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 are empty out. And yeah. I'm just like, I'm driving So you guys along. getting back from a business trip? And this guy's just <laughs> banging along. And I looked over, and, and it was funny, because I remember thinking to myself, hashtag awesome. And I'm sure that you have heard that way too many times. But it was kind of cool to see a man in body, exactly. Because we can't do it all the time. Like, we can't be awesome all the time. We can't be happy all the time. We can't be leaders all the time. And I don't think the goal is to be that all the time. I think the goal is to be that as much as possible. And and that is all that we can really aim for, man. Absolutely agree. And uh, yeah, it's been a slice. Thanks so it's much. It's been for amazing, man. Thanks so much. So my profound thanks to Neil Pashrika for being our guest on the Day One Leadership Podcast this week. We would like to give away some free copies of The Happiness Equation, Want Nothing Plus Do Anything Equals Have Everything. They are all autographed by Neil Pashrika. So here's what we'd like to do. We would like you to take to Twitter once again, and we would like you to share with us how you invested 20 minutes in your happiness today. Did you jog? Did you meditate? Did you go for a walk? Did you make out? It doesn't matter. Whatever you did today to invest 20 minutes in your happiness, tweet us at day one leadership. That's D-A why the number one and leadership tell us how you invested that 20 minutes in your happiness today and we will randomly select some people to get a autographed copy of neil's book the happiness equation so join us next week we're going to be joined by chief executive magazine ceo of the year that's chuck runyon of anytime fitness Entrepreneur Magazine ranked his company first on their global franchise list, and Forbes called it one of America's 15 most promising companies. Here's a preview of what you're going to hear from Chuck next week. People never say, Chuck, I'm wealthier and I'm happier, or they never say, because I look better in the mirror, I'm happier. You know what they say is, 
oh my gosh, I just like who I am better. I like my, my personality is different. I have more energy. I'm more outgoing. I, I care more about things. I'm doing more. I'm like experiencing more in life. To me, the scale or the mirror, it's just a nice little side effect. It's just like, oh great, I look better. That is cool. But guess what? The biggest change people have is about how they go after more life. Chuck is honestly a force of nature. Please come back next week. He drops so many incredible insights. We have an amazing conversation. If you like this week's episode, please take a moment to review us on iTunes. Give us a five-star review. It helps an awful lot. Thanks so much for joining us this week. I'm Drew Dudley. This is day one. Every day is day one. We'll see you next week.